0: It's your time to ed up with America's leading higher education podcast network, the EdUp experience where we make education your business. This is ed-up legal with your host, Patty Roberts. She's Dean at St. Mary's school of law, and she's going to be leading conversations about legal education in today's world. Now let's hear from your host, Patty Roberts.
1: Welcome to Ed Up Legal. This is Patty Roberts from St. Mary's University School of Law. And today I have with me Lee Fisher, the Dean and Joseph C. Hostetler, Baker Hostetler Chair in Law at Cleveland Marshall College of Law at Cleveland State University. And that's a position he has held since 2017. Welcome, Dean Fisher.
0: Thank you. Uh, Appreciate being a guest on your show.
1: Well, I'm very excited to have you on. And one thing I wanted to start with, because it's rather unusual for deans, um, is your public service in some really high-profile positions in Ohio. So you were Ohio Attorney General from 91 to 95, um, served as Attorney General. Let's see. In addition to that, you served as Ohio Lieutenant Governor, Director of the Ohio Department of Development and then some additional um, positions that you may want to expand on. But tell me about those experiences and how they might inform your deanship and how they led to your deanship, if at all.
0: Well, first, uh, may I call you Patty and not Dean?
1: Absolutely. Okay,
0: so Patty, uh, here's a a, a quick uh, background. I I think it's fair to say that I'm a non-traditional dean. In fact, I might be the most non-traditional dean in the country. Uh, There's
1: the gauntlet. We'll, we'll have to see that's right. what I, think
0: I'd lo- I'd lo- I would love it if there were a prize for the, <laughs> the most non-traditional dean. If there is, I think I'm a candidate. Uh, I have uh, lived my life at the intersection of the public, private, nonprofit, and academic sectors. But unlike most deans, I have not spent a majority of my career in the academic sector. Uh, I think it's fair to say that I probably spent a majority of my career Uh, in the public sector. Uh, After I graduated law school, I was a law clerk on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, joined a a fairly large law firm in my hometown of Cleveland, Ohio. But after having only practiced law in the antitrust area for maybe about three years, uh, I decided to run for the state legislature. I was lucky enough to have a law firm that allowed me to remain uh, as of counsel uh, and I served for 10 years in the legislature, two in the House, eight in the Senate, but continued to practice law primarily on Fridays and the weekends, uh, mm-hmm. and the rest of the week I was a state legislator. Uh, in 1990, I was elected Ohio Attorney General, and here's a piece of political trivia for you, and that is uh, I won the closest statewide election in Ohio political history, and that record still stands. Uh yeah it's not necessarily how you want to be in the record books but it is what it is uh, and uh, served for attorney general for four years uh, i lost my reelection by a margin that was almost as close by the one i won it uh, went back to practice law uh, then i ran for uh, governor i was the democratic nominee for governor of ohio in 1998 running against uh, robert taft uh, the taft name in ohio was like the kennedy name in massachusetts or the bush name in texas I used to joke that I was running I used to joke that I was running against someone whose great-grandfather was president of the United States, and my great-grandfather was a sheet metal worker from Russia. Uh, so he had a 100 year <laughs> head start uh, uh, name recognition. Uh, I also was the CEO of a couple nonprofit organizations. Uh, the Center for Families and Children in uh, Cleveland, which is about about 50 million dollar budget. It's uh, a very big nonprofit also was the C, president and CEO of a national organization called CEOs for Cities that helps cities uh, become more economically successful. And as you mentioned, I was also the lieutenant governor of Ohio. And while I was a lieutenant governor, I also served as the department, as the director of the Department of Economic Development. So that is a fairly non-traditional path uh, to being dean. But I can tell you honestly, as much as I've loved every position in my career, this is my favorite because I found the fountain of youth it's called students. Uh, (laughs) When you're with students, your your whole perspective changes. And so I love this position and I'm very grateful for it.
1: So I'm interested to know, did all of these very diverse experiences, an unusual path certainly to a deanship, do you think that they gave you an edge in the candidacy? Or do you think it was this history, this non-traditional history, was something you had to overcome with those who have been Um, practicing in the academy or teaching in the academy for decades?
0: Both. Uh, There were some skeptics, uh, which is understandable, who said, listen, if he's not been in the academic sector, if he hasn't written a host of law review articles and hasn't uh, been teaching for years, how can he be a dean? And yet there were others on the faculty who said, how many deans write law articles, uh, law review articles, and how many deans actually run the law school and are the CEO? If we're looking for somebody who's actually run and managed and led organizations, then Lee's the guy. But if we're looking for a traditional dean with academic background, then Lee's not the guy. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that I went in with some people recognizing that uh, having that management experience of large organizations was an advantage, but I had to overcome the skepticism of others. The reason I was able to overcome it, quite frankly, was that I was uh, first selected as the interim dean for one year, and then I had to compete. But the advantage of being interim dean is that the, in a sense, the faculty got to interview me for one year, not for two hours. Uh, and I think I overcame my skepticism, uh, overcome, I should say I overcame the skepticism of some faculty by working with them, with them for a year and admitting what I knew and admitting what I didn't know. And I, to me, that's the, the essence of leadership is self-awareness, uh, knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know, and focusing on making sure you surround yourself with people who can complement you both your strengths and your weaknesses.
1: Well, very accurate description of of what you need to do to be a dean and also um, for good leadership. And I'm not surprised that you had skeptics. How wonderful for them that they had a year to try you out, if it will. But boy, you took a big risk taking an interim position when you were gainfully employed in a variety of fashions. I
0: did take a big risk, but I think the faculty took a big risk on me. So it was only fair that I take a risk if they were going to take a risk on me.
1: Well, congratulations. It seems to be going well now that you're many years into it. And considering your background and what you bring to the challenges of being a dean, Um, I would say you've had some additional challenges that many of us have thankfully not had to face. And I'm gonna ask you about some of those because these are areas where your non-traditional leadership must have really helped um, because they are unusual situations. First, I understand that um, there were merger talks with another law school. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: I can. In fact, I'll preface this by saying this every dean in the country has serious challenges Uh, and i don't pretend to know what all those challenges are unless i happen to be a friend of the dean and they tell me so i don't want to suggest during this interview today that my challenges are any more serious uh, than anybody else's but i think it is fair to say that i've had three serious challenges all at the same time and we'll discuss each one of them briefly the first one is the one you talked about That is uh, back in the summer of 2020, after COVID hit, uh, I was in some conversations with my friend and colleague, CJ Peters, the Dean of the University of Akron Law School. And we were talking about the fact that we should take advantage of the fact that our courses were online and and because we're only 40 miles apart geographically, and that we should begin to allow our students to cross-register because now that we were going online, it made a lot of sense. So uh, we launched uh, some cross-registration, which was highly successful. Uh, Students from both law schools really appreciated it. Uh, And then we said, you know what? If we're gonna do that, why don't we put everything on the table? Uh, Because legal education is about to change in a pretty dramatic way. And a lot of it is because of COVID. It would have happened anyway, but it's been accelerated. So let's put everything on the table, even the possibility of integrating and combining and merging our two law schools, even if we have some skepticism about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we both agreed that we would do that. We went to our university presidents. They thought it was an interesting and bold idea. We went to our faculties, not surprising. Some thought it was bold. Some thought it was a ridiculous idea and were opposed immediately, but that's that. I've been, I've been dealing with politics my whole life. So that didn't shock me. Right. Uh, and so what we agreed to do was form uh, an ex- a joint exploratory committee Uh, consisting of staff, faculty, and alumni uh, from both law schools and over the course of a year and a half we discussed it and I think it's fair to say we came to several conclusions. One, that the cross registration was a great success and we should continue it and even expand it. Uh, But as we measured the results of our faculty and our alumni, there was deep skepticism about a merger for lots of reasons. Uh, and in the end, just recently, uh, both presidents and both deans came to the reluctant conclusion that at least now was not the time, and so we took merger off the table. We have kept the possibility of a more robust partnership beyond cross-registration on the table, but there's nothing specific right now that we can talk about or that may even be launched. But I will say this, uh, despite the fact you can compete with other law schools, uh, I think it's fair to say that the best leaders know you can also collaborate with your competitors uh, as long as you're not violating antitrust laws. Uh, and so what we have done is we're, we are now competitors and collaborators and, I, collaborators, and I think we're both better law schools for it.
1: That's really interesting, especially with your geographic proximity. Yes. Um, you know, 40 minutes is nothing. Not Counts only like that,
0: Patty, but Ohio's got more law schools per capita than perhaps any other state in the country. We have really? not- We have nine law schools in a state with 11 million people, three of which are in northern Ohio, Uh, Cleveland, actually four of which are in northern Ohio, Cleveland, Case Western Reserve University, uh, University of Akron and University of Toledo. Think of that four, uh, all within a, we're we're about a mile and a half from Case, uh, we're 40 miles from Akron. And we're about 120 miles from Toledo, but we're also very close to Ohio State and to Capitol and to Dayton and the University of Cincinnati. Uh, So it's a very unusual situation. And it makes sense that at least two law schools would be talking about the possibility of, if not merging, at least collaborating in some way.
1: Wow, yeah, when I was first thinking about um, coming to Texas, I was a little bit stunned. There were 10 law schools here. Now I see 10 is not so many in a state this size. I mean, not compared
0: so, to Ohio. We have no. we definitely have more law schools than you do per capita.
1: That's uh, crazy. Population. But I'm, I, it must be working. But how exciting that you're you're exploring ways to collaborate. So that was one issue, the, the potential merger. Earlier this year, I know we were surprised to read um, that the ABA said that your law school was out of compliance. Um and I thought I would give you the opportunity to talk about that um, so that you can explain what happened and how there's no no cause for concern.
0: Sure, well, as a matter of fact, before we even began, you said to me, do you wanna talk about this? And I can understand, a lot of deans might say, no, no, don't bring that up. But uh, I believe in transparency, and it also frankly gives me an opportunity to tell people what happened uh, and to put it in some perspective. Uh, we had the first online ABA site visit in the history of legal education back in the fall of 2020. They found very few issues or problems. Uh, We responded with a uh, report, basically giving them additional information that they wanted. But then in February of 2021, they sent us a letter and they said, you know what? We're concerned about one thing. You've had very serious budget cuts by your university over the last four years. Uh, In fact, uh, they pointed out that I have, uh, as dean, 20 less staff than when I started in 2017, all because of university mandated budget cuts, and also about five or six less faculty. And it's no surprise that when they talked to our faculty and our staff, they were not happy about that, and they told the ABA. So the ABA basically said, what are you gonna do about the fact that you don't seem to have enough administrative support staff to support your students and your staff and your faculty? And it's fair to say that although we were doing fine and we were not in any serious danger, uh, they had every right to point that out because it was true that we were thinly staffed. So bottom line is I went to the university and I said, look, now's the time for us to fill some vacancies. By the way, not even hire new positions, just fill vacancies and staff. And to make a long story short, uh, I wrote a letter to the ABA saying that we were uh, going to fill these vacancies, but the university refused and said, no, we don't want the letter to go to the ABA because we don't want to be held hostage by the ABA. And I explained that you don't play chicken with the accreditor. Uh, That's a tough spot
1: for you guys to be in.
0: Yeah, it was not an easy, not an easy position. So bottom line is uh, we had no choice but to say to the ABA that we were going to come up with a plan. And we didn't say what the plan would be because that's what the response the university wanted to make despite my, over my objections. So it's not surprising that they put us out of compliance temporarily, because they said, look, you haven't addressed the issue. Uh, It's not enough to say you're gonna do a plan. You gotta tell us what the plan is. So I went back to the university and I said, look, uh, you've put us in a tough position here. So I wanna be very clear. Uh, We need more staff, not just because the ABA says we do, uh, but because we do. And this time I was able to convince the university to be straightforward, make a commitment. Uh, we uh, went back to the ABA and they said, you're back in compliance. So the irony of all this is that when you're, you're out of compliance, people usually assume it's for one of two reasons, either bar passage, which was not the issue in our case, our bar passage has consistently been high, or because you have financial problems. That's also not true. Uh, when I uh, became dean, we had a two, uh, about a, a little more than a $2 million deficit Today, we're running more than $2 million surplus. We have no financial problems at all. Uh, challenges like every law school does, but certainly we're, we're in the black, we're not in the red. But if you don't have a lot of information and you read that, you assume the worst. So Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to say on this podcast that it was not the worst. We were in financially strong, we had great bar passage, but believe it or not, it was all because we didn't have enough administrative support staff Uh, And we dealt with that issue eventually. It's too bad we were out of compliance. I don't think it should have ever happened. Uh, But it was because the university and and the law school had a disagreement about how to respond to the ABA.
1: Well, I certainly appreciate your transparency, and I'm very glad you have the opportunity to address it for people who may have wondered. Um, Sure. You know, we we see sound bites and we see uh, headlines. And like, as you said, we tend to assume the worst. So it certainly was not the worst, and I'm glad it's all worked out. Now the third issue uh, is still ongoing, and that is the petition to change the name of your law school, which is no small feat, I imagine, with those same uh, you know alumni who and faculty who are very loyal to Cleveland Marshall College of Law as they have known it. Um, so if you could share. How did the name change petition um, originate? Did it bubble up from students, faculty, staff? How did that happen? And then, um, as you are concluding the report period and about to submit a report to the university, what do you see the, the future of this name change petition?
0: Well, believe it or not, all three of these issues we talked about today basically have been happening concurrently, all at the same time the ABA compliance issue, the merger discussed with the University of Akron Law School. And as you point out, the law school name issue, which uh, is with us at the moment.
1: I'm just Uh, gonna say, you deserve a a long vacation. You should take (laughs) the whole summer off.
0: (laughs) Well, I can't can't ask for sympathy because I'm guessing lots of deans have these kinds of issues. I just don't (laughs) know about them, right? But these definitely been my three elephants in the room. So in the summer of 2020, we received a petition signed by about 1,500 people, most of whom were students or alumni of two law schools, our law school, Cleveland Marshall College of Law, and the John Marshall Law School in Chicago, affiliated with the University of Illinois, Chicago. They focused on our two law schools because we're two of the three law schools in the country that are named after the fourth Chief Justice of the United States and the longest serving Chief Justice of the United States, John Marshall. Uh, now, there's also a law school in Atlanta, but uh, and they're going to have to deal with that issue eventually, but they were not the subject of the petition. So uh, I immediately decided that the best thing I could do was to form a committee made up of students, staff, faculty, and alumni to consider the issue. Now, why would the petition ask that we change our name? In the year 2018, Uh, historian Paul Finkelman wrote a book called Supreme Injustice, in which he exposed the fact that although everyone knew that Chief Justice John Marshall was a slaveholder, all the historians up to that point said that he had about uh, a dozen or less. Now, for us, you and I and anybody listening to this podcast, that's 12 slaves too many. But Paul Finkelman showed that he actually owned more than 200 slaves and bought and sold them throughout his term. That is problematic, uh, no matter what your view is on this issue. And so I took the petition very seriously. The first, One of the first things I did was to buy the book by Paul Finkelman and to read it. And the committee decided that we had to do this in a deliberate process that involved due diligence and due process. It's no surprise that there were some students who immediately when they found out felt that it was inappropriate to form a committee, that I should have immediately recommended to the university that we change the name. Now, by the way, the ultimate decision is not the law schools, it is the university. And there were some alumni who immediately said, how dare you form a committee? This is cancel culture, this is political correctness, being politically correct, excuse me, and you ought ought to just reject this out of hand. And of course, I rejected both of those views out of hand because I said, no, uh, this is a serious issue where there are legitimate and strong arguments on all sides, and we're gonna do this right. So we held six public forums, three of which we brought in experts from around the country on naming issues. And one of those three, we actually brought in Paul Finkelman and another historian and expert on John Marshall who didn't think that we should change our name. And they were great forums and educational forums. Then we held three town halls open to our students and our staff and our faculty and our alumni, and let all of them express their opinions. Then I asked, uh, we formed a subcommittee of the law school name committee. And I said, I'd like to prepare a framing document that would make the strongest arguments for changing our name and against changing our name. I also wanted that framing document to articulate a set of guiding principles by which the university should make its decision. And I also said, we should take a look about how we can make this a teachable moment regardless of what the decision is uh, and we put together a 45-page framing document that included all those sections. And then we did one more thing. We decided to send out a feedback form. Uh, Some would call it a survey. Uh, I call it a feedback form because it wasn't really a vote, Uh, but we sent it out to about 4,500 people, stakeholders, alumni, the uh, faculty, uh, both adjunct emeritus and full-time, our students, our staff, Uh, the legal community, the general Cleveland State University community. Out of 4,500, we got an amazing response. More than 1,300 people responded.
1: very significant. Uh,
0: That's very significant, uh, much higher than most surveys get. Uh, And no surprise, there was a wide divergence of opinion. But having researched this around about what other universities and law schools have done around the country, there's sort of a pattern that emerges And that is a majority of alumni of colleges, universities, and law schools usually are against changing the name. And the pattern is usually the majority of students, staff, and faculty are in favor of changing the name. And that's exactly what happened here. Uh, So we are simply going to, in the report that I'm writing as we speak, gonna give all that information to the university. In addition, the law school name committee voted and voted to change the name. And our faculty, full-time faculty voted to change the name. So we're gonna be giving all that information uh, to the university and then the university will have to decide how and when they make the decision whether to change the name of the law school.
1: Well, I wanna applaud your very deliberate and intentional process um, as you brought in historians and experts in name changes in instances like this. The forums you held, the town halls, the subcommittee, the survey, the guiding principles. I mean, I can't imagine you're you're getting any more input than you did. So whatever result the university decides, I am confident that people will have felt heard. And that's so critical in issues. That
0: by the way was my goal, that regardless of what the decision was, that people would respect the fact that we did a deliberate, thorough process where we considered all views and let people's voices be heard and to me the best uh the be- the, the best indication that we've done a great job is that everyone's mad at me
1: uh yes
0: that's usually what happens if the because there are students mad at me who say you took too long this due process stuff is ridiculous he was, <laughs> he was a slaveholder. end of story right change the name and there are some alumni who said, wait a second. Should we change the name of the capital of the United States? Should we do this with Thomas Jefferson? Where do you draw the line? Enough is enough. Don't even consider this petition. Sure. And uh, yeah, I think all those views are understandable. They're wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for every, as H.L. Mencken once said, Patty, for every complex problem, there's a solution that is simple, neat, and wrong. Uh, and... <laughs> And I, I wasn't about to engage in a process where we came up with a quick answer just to appease some people on any side of the issue.
1: So, in each of these problems, um, you have identified your approach to reaching some sort of a resolution. And in each of them, there was conflict, um, and um, and a divergence of opinions, all well-meaning and all well-supported. I imagine.
0: Yes, that's um,
1: right. And. That is the mark of a a very strong, experienced uh, leader, being able to navigate through those challenges and those difficulties with various stakeholders with very divergent views. And I know that you have at your law school a leadership and the law program. And so I wonder if you can tell us about that program and what your own students will learn from participating in that program that might help them when they're deans one day.
0: Patty, when I came to the law school, uh, I couldn't have been more impressed with our faculty and with uh, the depth and the breadth of our curriculum, with one exception. Uh, The word leadership wasn't even mentioned in the vocabulary of our law school and our culture. There was no course that taught about leadership. Uh, And we have failed our students in legal education by not teaching leadership. Business schools are 100 years ahead of us in that respect. Business schools have been teaching leadership for decades to their credit. Law schools sort of say, well, if you know the law and you do well in law school, you'll eventually become a leader. That's not the way it works. Leadership leader, there are a couple people once in a while in every town and community who are born leaders. Most leaders, however, uh, are trained and they're taught and it's a skill that's constantly being developed. So uh, I decided to create a law and leadership program And I went to one of our uh, alumni who I know uh, felt strongly that leadership was an important component. And he was very generous and gave us a large gift to help us basically fund the leadership in law program. As part of that, we have a leaders in residence program where we bring in distinguished uh, leaders, most of whom, but not all of whom are alumni. But they don't just come and give a lecture once a year. We give them an office in the law school. And they're there to coach the students, to to mentor their students, as well as to speak to the students in classes. The second thing we did was we uh, created a hall of fame where we could honor uh, our alumni who have been great leaders in the past. That has also been very successful. And the next thing we did was to put together uh, a Dean's Leadership Fellows Program, where we, uh, through application, select students who have either demonstrated leadership or certainly demonstrate great leadership potential as well as strong academics. And we have a program uh, for them that's even more in depth for all the other students. Uh, and uh, finally, I teach a course every year uh, in leadership. Uh, and I, I will say to you that uh, there are an num- increasing number of law schools around the country that are now doing this uh, to their great credit And I think within five years, uh, probably every law school will be doing it. Uh, And uh, I give a lot of credit to uh, Deborah Rhodes, the late Deborah Rhodes at Stanford, who was one of the earliest leaders in this area, as was Don Polden of Santa Clara University Law School and others, Uh, and thanks to their work, a new section was created in the ALS, American Association of Law Schools Leadership Section, and I was one of those charter members, uh, along with about maybe 20 other law schools. And it's growing quite quickly. Uh, and I, I'm very optimistic that, uh, it, although it'll take us a long time to catch up with law school, I'm sorry, with business schools, uh, that we're well on our way to recognizing that leadership can be taught and should be taught.
1: Well, I'm in wholehearted agreement. Um, and I also taught a, a law and leadership program here this past year, and I loved it. And the students, um, it was a small class, but they all indicated that they learned a lot. And the biggest part of it, you, we started by you're saying that part of leadership is self-awareness. And I think that was the best benefit for the students. And frankly, for me also, it's the teacher is learning more about your existing leadership styles, uh, the skills you bring to it, the the things that are not as Um, strong, your characteristics of leadership that are not honed as well, and being able to work on those um, to improve your leadership. Because as you indicated, it's a constant um, evolution, one's leadership style and skill.
0: In in fact, every time I've taught leadership, I've changed the way I teach it because I'm learning as I teach it, that there there are different ways to teach leadership and some are better than others. And so I'm always learning about leadership all the time.
1: Me too. And so you indicate that in a number of years, you think that all law schools will be teaching leadership in some fashion. I know there, there's been a huge increase, but that is a good segue into our final question. And that is how you think that legal education will evolve in the coming decade?
0: Well, I think I'll, I'll tell you, I give a number of uh, things that I'm predicting, not, none of which are earth shattering. And I think most people would probably agree with me. The first is the most obvious one. And that is that because of COVID, uh, we were already moving to having much more hybrid learning than we've had in the past. But that has been accelerated uh, to many degrees because of COVID. And I think that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Although I believe that face-to-face, person-to-person interaction is still the best way to communicate and the best way to teach and the best way to learn, we also have to take into account that there are many people in in this world who are juggling multiple balls uh, with serious financial challenges, who despite the fact they'd like to be taking uh, classes in person, can't. Or at least if they do, it's a great hardship. Uh, And so as a result, we're finding ways that you can teach online. In some ways, it can be more effective. Uh, In some ways, it's less effective. There are trade-offs. But I think we're moving more and more to a better mixture of online and in-person learning that we normally refer to as hybrid. I consider that a good thing. The second thing is goes back to the issue we just talked about. I think if every dean in the country spent a week every year doing nothing else but talking to the employers, the legal employers in their community, they'd all come to the same conclusion, and that is they're looking for leaders. They're not just looking for lawyers. Yes, occasionally a boutique firm in tax or IP will say we need to have somebody who was uh, an A student in IP or an A student in tax. But that's the exception. That's not the rule. The managing partners that I talk to say, look, as long as that student did well in law school, what I care about is that they know how to think critically. Do they know how to work in, in, in groups and be collaborators? Are they experienced in making decisions and tough decisions and knowing that there are lots of options of those decisions? That's leadership and I hate when we refer to it as soft skills because they're hard skills. They're not easy skills to learn, but I think legal, legal education is slowly but surely moving into a, moving in a direction that recognizes that this is an essential part of legal education, that with the exception of those students who take trial advocacy or moot court is often missing in law school, and I think we're moving in that direction. And then the third is technology. I think that we have to recognize that technology has already reshaped our lives in many ways, and therefore we have an obligation to embed technology in the teaching and learning process the best we can. Online learning is a part of that, but it's more than that. It's also understanding technology and the intersection of technology and law. So I would say those are the three biggest trends that I would identify going forward, and there are some law schools that are far ahead of the one that I'm fortunate to be dean of, but I'd like to think that all law schools will be doing this of the, in the next three to seven years.
1: I hope so as well. We've got to continue to evolve and, and take the valuable lessons we've learned and put them into action.
0: Um, yes. Well, you know, I will add one more thing, Patty. I think there's also going to be, a, a, there's an understanding already in many law schools that the days of Dean saying to students, look to your left, look to your right. One of you won't be here are gone." And that we recognize that although we have we are a place where it is hard, and it should be hard, and it should be difficult, that you can be supportive at the same time and be mm-hmm. concerned about your students' uh, mental and physical health. We learned that in COVID, and I think we're all better for it. And I think that's a trend in legal education as well, to recognize you can have a rigorous curriculum and a rigorous program of legal education, but still be caring and supportive.
1: Absolutely. And we've got to learn how to um, make sure that our students or teach our students how to take care of themselves because if those wellness skills can start in law school maybe they'll bring them into the profession with them where we know they're so desperately needed exactly right well thank you dean fisher it's been a pleasure talking with you and we will watch um, in anticipation to see if the name changes or not
0: uh patty i want to compliment you on the fact that you do this podcast i think it's pioneering i think it's great and i think every dean should be required to listen to every podcast
1: (laughs) well thank you (laughs) i'll let you tell our colleagues that
0: okay i will will. you you
1: assign that homework
0: that's good okay all
1: right thanks so much
0: thanks patty bye-bye this has been another episode of ed up legal with your host Patty Roberts. EdUp Legal is part of the EdUp Experience podcast network, bringing you the brightest and most influential minds across higher education and beyond. Here at EdUp, we make education your business.